0: Introduction. Martin Ami. Is prescience a literary virtue? And should the work of JG Ballard be particularly prized for these uncanny accuracy of its forecasts? The answer to both these questions, I suggest, is a cheerful no. In the atrocity exhibition, Ballard famously tapped Ronald Reagan for president. His Hello America, on the other hand, surmised that the United States in its entirety would be evacuated by 1990. The meteorological cataclysms envisaged by his first four novels still look plausible, but the social crisis envisaged by his last four novels, violent and widespread anami brought about by a glut of leisure and wealth, now looks vanishingly remote. So here's a prophecy. Fictional divination will always be hopelessly haphazard. The unfolding of world historical events is itself haphazard and therefore unesthetic. And the future is in a sense defined by its messy inscrutability. Besides, the art of fiction owes allegiance to a muse a goddess as pure as her nine sisters, and not to some bustling Madame Sosostris, Eliot's famous clairvoyant, with her wicked pack of cards. Nevertheless, there are certain writers whose visionary power is indifferent to the corroboration of mere upshots, writers who seem to be able to feel and use the world hum of the near after. That first quote is from Don DeLillo, who is one such. The second quote is from James Graham Ballard, who is another. Ballard foresaw man-made climate change, not in the drowned world, but in the drought. In the drought, industrial waste has thickened the mantle of the oceans and destroyed the precipitation cycle transforming the planet into a wilderness of dust and fire. In the drowned world, ecological catastrophe has a quite different set of causes. The median temperature at the equator is 180 degrees and rising. The polar ice caps and the permafrost have melted. Europe is a system of giant lagoons. The American Midwest is an enormous gulf opening into the Hudson Bay. And the global population, down to 5 million, huddles within the Arctic and Antarctic circles, where the thermometers for now record a pleasant 85. And how did this all come about? Solar instability, pure and simple, with no help whatsoever from Homo sapiens. So, on the basis of this one novel, Ballard could unobtrusively add his voice to the current Republican debate on global warming. Slightly to the left of Rick Perry and Michelle Bachmann, true, but slightly to the right of Mitt Romney. This is an irony we need not fear. Indeed, it speeds us on our way to more central questions. As a man, and as a good green, Ballard was naturally on the side of the angels, but as an artist, he is unconditionally of the devil's party. He loves the glutinous jungles of the drowned world and the tindery deserts of the drought, just as he loves the super hurricane or express avalanche of the wind from nowhere and the mineralized multiplicities of the crystal world. It is the measure of his creative radicalism that he welcomes these desperate dystopias with every atom of his being. When he turned away from hardcore science fiction in the 1950s, Ballard rejected outer space in favor of its opposite, inner space. Accordingly, he merges with his conjured, conjured futures, internalizing them in a kind of imaginative martyrdom. The fusion of mood and setting, the map, mapping of a landscape of the troubled mind. This is what really matters in Ballard. It gives the novels their tight clench of waywardness and fixity. Soon, it would be too hot is the laconic first sentence of the drowned world. Its hero, the marine biologist Robert Curens, is staring out from the balcony of his suite at the Ritz. He is the only mammalian occupant of the hotel. The rising water is 10 stories from his feet. Even through the massive olive green fronds, The relentless power of the sun was plainly tangible. The blunt, refracted rays drummed against his bare chest and shoulders. The solar disk was no longer a well-defined sphere, but a wide expanding ellipse that fanned out across the eastern horizon like a colossal fireball, its reflection turning the dead, leaden surface of the lagoon into a brilliant copper shield. The sun is alarmingly distended. It is also alarmingly noisy. It thuds and booms. We hear the volcanic pounding of its flares. There are mosquitoes the size of dragonflies, hammer-nosed bats, wolf spiders. There are iguanas and basilisks. At one point, a large caiman sees Kieran's waist-deep among the horsetails, and veers toward him, its eyes steadying. The water gives off an unendurable reek, the sweet compacted smells of dead vegetation and rotting animal carcasses. Kieran's watches the countless reflections of the sun move across the surface in huge sheets of fire like the blazing faceted eyes of gigantic insects. Beneath the lagoon is a city, free of vegetation, apart from a few drifting clumps of sargasso weed. The streets and shops had been preserved almost intact, like a reflection in a lake that has somehow lost its original. The city is London. Kirans is nominally engaged with a team of scientists on a waterborne testing station, but the work has become pointlessly routine. Fauna and flora are faithfully following the emergent lines anticipated 20 years earlier, namely an accelerated counter-evolution, retrogression into a world of lizards and rainforests under a Triassic sun. The human actors have embarked on a parallel process within the diameter of their own skulls. Early on, we learn that something has gone wrong with sleep. At night, the protagonists enter the time jungles of uterine dreams, descending into their amniotic past and also into the past of the species, experiencing the archaic memories the organic memories of danger and terror encrypted in their spinal cords. Some fear these dreams. Kiran's, of course, embraces them and yearningly submits to their domination of his waking mind. Guided by his dreams, he was moving backwards toward the emergent past a succession of ever stranger landscapes centered upon the lagoon at times the circle of water was spectral and vibrant at others slack and murky the shore apparently formed of shale like the dull metallic skin of a reptile yet again the soft beaches would glow invitingly with a glossy carmine sheen the sky warm and limpid emptiness of the long stretches of sand, total and absolute, filling him with an exquisite and tender anguish. Ballard gives the drawn world the trappings of a conventional novel, hero, heroine, authority figure, villain, and equips it with a plot, Jeopardy, Climax, Resolution, Coda, But all this feels dutiful and perfunctory as if conventionally, conventionality simply bores him. Thus the novel's backdrop is boldly futuristic while its mechanics seem antique. With something of the boy's own innocence we find in John Buchan and C.S. Forrester. In addition, Ballard's strikingly square dialogue remains a serious lacuna. Here as elsewhere, his dramatist personae, supposedly so gaunt and ghostly, talk like a troop of British schoolteachers hoisted out of the 1930s. Damn shame about old Bodkin. Capital, touche, Alan. We conclude that Ballard is quite unstimulated by human interaction unless it takes the form of something inherently weird, like mob atavism or mass hysteria. What excites him is human isolation. The otherness of Ballard, his mesmeric glazedness, is always attributed to the two years he spent in a Japanese internment camp in Shanghai. That experience, I think, should be seen in combination or in synergy with the two years he spent dissecting cadavers as a medical student in Cambridge. Again, the dichotomy. As a man, he was ebulliently social and humorous, but as an artist, he is fiercely solitary and humorless. The outcome, in any event, is a genius for the perverse and the obsessional realized in a prose style of hypnotically varied vowel sounds. Its diction enriched by a wide range of technical vocabularies. In the end, the tensile strength of the drowned world derives not from its action, but it's from its poetry. Soon it would be too hot. Yes, and soon it will be time to abandon the lagoon and the drowned city. They will evacuate north to one of the last human redoubts camp bird in Arctic Greenland. There are, after all, pressing reasons to go. The mutating mosquitoes and mutating malarias, the new skin cancers caused by the evaporating cloud cover, the increasingly brazen encroachments of the reptiles, the coming of the equatorial rain belts and the equatorial heat. Kiran's is inevitably the last to leave. He does so on foot, on foot singular with an infected leg wound and a crutch. And which way is he heading as the novel closes? Even a reader quite new to Ballard Will by this stage consent to the logic of it? There isn't any direction. He is heading south. On the beach at the Ritz. Soon it would be too hot. Looking out from the hotel balcony shortly after eight o'clock, Caron's watched the sun rise beneath. The dense groves of giant gymnosperms crowding over the roofs of the abandoned department stores 400 yards away on the east side of the lagoon even through the massive olive green fronds the relentless power of the sun was plainly tangible the blunt refracted rays drummed against his bare chest and shoulders drawing out the first sweat and he put on a pair of heavy sunglasses to protect his eyes. The solar disk was no longer a well-defined sphere, but a wide expanding ellipse that fanned out across the Eastern horizon like a colossal fireball, its reflection turning the dead leaden surface of the lagoon into a brilliant copper shield. By noon, less than four hours away, the water would seem to burn. Usually, Kerans woke at five and reached the biological testing station in time to do at least four or five hours work before the heat became intolerable. But this morning, he found himself reluctant to leave the cool, air-conditioned haven of the hotel suite. He had spent a couple of hours over breakfast alone and then completed a six-page entry in his diary, deliberately delaying his departure until Colonel Riggs passed the hotel in his patrol boat, knowing that by then it would be too late to go to the station. The colonel was always eager for an hour of conversation particularly when sustained by a few rounds of aperitif, and it would be at least 11.30 before he left, his thoughts solely upon lunch at the base. For some reason, however, Riggs had been delayed. Presumably, he was carrying out a longer sweep than usual of the adjacent lagoons, but perhaps was waiting for Kieran's to arrive at the testing station. For a moment, Karens wondered whether to try to reach him on the radio transmitter installed by the signals unit in the lounge. But the console was buried under a pile of books, its battery flat. The corporal in charge of the radio station at the base had protested to Riggs in his cheerful morning roundup of old pop songs and local news, an attack by two iguanas on the helicopter the previous night, the latest temperature and the humidity readings had been cut off abruptly halfway through the first installment. But Riggs recognized Karen's unconscious attempt to sever his links with the bass. The careful, haphazardness of the pyramid of books hiding the set contrasted too obviously with Kieran's otherwise meticulous neatness and tolerantly accepted his need to isolate himself Leaning on the balcony rail, the slack water ten stories below reflecting his thin angular shoulders and gaunt profile Parents watched one of the countless thermal storms rip through a clump of horse, huge horsetails, lining the creek which led out of the lagoon. Trapped by the surrounding buildings and the inversion layers a hundred feet above the water, pockets of air would heat rapidly, then explode upwards like escaping balloons leaving behind them a sudden detonating vacuum. For a few seconds, the steam clouds hanging over the creek dispersed and a vicious miniature tornado lashed across the 60 feet high plants, toppling them like matchsticks. Then, as abruptly, the storm vanished and the great columnar trunks subsided among one another in the water like sluggish alligators. Rationalizing, Cairns told himself that he had been wise to remain in the hotel. The storms were erupting more and more frequently as the temperature rose, but he knew that his real motive was his acceptance that little now remained to be done the biological mapping had become a pointless game. The new flora following exactly the emergent lines anticipated 20 years later, earlier, and he was sure that no one at Camp Bird in northern Greenland bothered to file his reports, let alone read them. In fact, old Dr. Bodkins, Kieran's assistant at the station, had slyly prepared what purported to be an eyewitness description by one of Colonel Riggs's sergeants of a large, sail-backed lizard with a gigantic dorsal fin, which had been seen cruising across one of the lagoons, in all respects indistinguishable from the Pachlosaur, an early Pennsylvanian reptile. Had the report had been taken at its face value, heralding the momentous return of the age of the great reptiles, an army of ecologists would have descended on them immediately, backed by a tactical atomic weapons unit and orders to proceed south at a steady 20 knots. But apart from the routine acknowledgement signal, nothing had been heard. Perhaps the specialists at Camp Bird were too tired even to laugh. At the end of the month, Colonel Riggs and his small holding unit would complete their survey of the city. Had it once been Berlin, Paris, or London, Karens asked himself, and set off northward, towing the testing station with them. Cairns found it difficult to believe that he would ever leave the penthouse suite where he had lived for the past six months. The Ritz's reputation, he gladly agreed, was richly deserved. The bathroom, for example, with its black marble basins and gold-plated taps and mirrors, was like the side chapel of a cathedral. In a curious way, it satisfied him to think That he was the last guest who would stay at the hotel identifying what he realized was a concluding phase of his own life the northward odyssey through the drowned cities in the south soon to end with their return to camp bird and its bracing disciplines and this farewell sunset of the hotel's long splendid history He had commandeered the Ritz the day after their arrival, eager to exchange his cramped cabin among the laboratory benches at the testing station for the huge high ceilinged staterooms of the deserted hotel. Already he had accepted the lavish brocaded furniture and the bronze Art Nouveau statuary in the corridor niches as a natural background to his existence savoring the subtle atmosphere of melancholy that surrounded these last vestiges of a level of civilization now virtually vanished forever. Too many of the other buildings around the lagoon had long slipped and slid away below the silt, revealing their gimcrack origins. And the Ritz now stood in splendid isolation on the west shore even the rich blue molds sprouting from the carpets in the dark corridors, adding to its 19th century dignity. The suite has been originally designed for a Milanese financier and was lavishly furnished and engineered. The heat curtains were still perfectly sealed, although the first six stories of the hotel were below water level and the load walls were beginning to crack. And the 250 amp air conditioning unit had worked without a halt. Although it had been unoccupied for 10 years, little dust had collected over the mantelpieces and gilt end tables. And the triptych of photographic portraits on the crocodile skin desk financier, financier, and sleek, well fed family financier and even sleeker 50-story office block, revealed scarcely a blemish. Luckily for Currans, his predecessor had left in a hurry. The cupboards and wardrobes were packed with treasure. Ivory-handled squash rackets and hand-printed dressing gowns. The cocktail bar stocked with an ample supply of what were now vintage whiskies and brandies. A giant anopheles mosquito, the size of a dragonfly, spat through the air past his face and dived down toward the floating jetty where Karen's catamaran was moored. The sun was still hidden behind the vegetation on the eastern side of the lagoon, but the mounting heat was bringing the huge predatory insects out of their lairs all over the moss-covered surface of the hotel. Kirans was reluctant to leave the balcony and retreat behind the white wire mesh enclosure. In the early morning light, a strange mournful beauty hung over the lagoon. The somber black green fronds of the gymnosperms, intruder from the Triassic past, and the half submerged white faced buildings of the 20th century still reflected together in the dark mirror of the water the two interlocking worlds apparently suspended at some junction in time the illusion momentarily broken when a giant water spider cleft the oily surface a hundred yards away in the distance somewhere beyond the drowned bulk of a large gothic building half a mile to the south A diesel engine coughed and surged. Kierans left the balcony, closing the wire door behind him, and went into the bathroom to shave. Water had long ceased to flow through the taps, but Kierans maintained a reservoir in the plunge bath, carefully purified in a homemade still on the roof, and piped in through the window. Although he was only 40, Kieran's beard had been turned white by the radiofluorine in the water. But his bleached crew cut hair and deep amber tan made him appear at least 10 years younger. A chronic lack of appetite and the new malarias had shrunk the dry, leathery skin under his cheekbones, emphasizing the ascetic cast of his face. As he shaved, he examined his features critically, feeling the narrowing planes with his fingers, kneading the altered musculature which was slowly transforming its contours, and revealing a personality that had remained latent during his previous adult life. Despite his introspective manner, he now seemed more relaxed and equitable no, equable, than he could remember. His cool blue eyes surveying himself with ironic detachment. The slightly self-conscious absorption in his own world, with its private rituals and observances, had passed. If he kept himself aloof from rigs and his men... This was simply a matter of convenience rather than of misanthropy. On the way out, he picked a monograph cream silk shirt from the stack left in the wardrobe by the financier and slipped into a pair of neatly pressed slacks with a Zurich label. Sealing the double doors behind him, the suite was effectively Effectively, a glass box inside the outer brick walls. He made his way down the staircase. He reached the landing stage as Colonel Riggs's cutter, a converted landing craft, pulled in against the catamaran. Riggs stood in the bows, a trim, dapper figure, one booted foot up on the ramp surveying the winding creeks and hanging jungles like an old-time African explorer. Good morning, Robert, he greeted Karens, jumping down on the swaying platform of 50-gallon drums slashed inside a wooden frame. Glad you're still here, I've got a job on my hands you can help me with. Can you take the day off from the station? Kieran's helped him onto the concrete balcony that had once jutted from a seventh floor suite. Of course, Colonel. As a matter of fact, I have already. Technically, Riggs had overall authority for the testing station and Karens should have asked his permission, but the relationship between the two men was without ceremony. They had worked together for over three years, as the testing station and its military escort moved slowly northward toward the European lagoons, and Riggs was content to let Karens and Bodkin get on with their work in their own fashion sufficiently busy himself with the jobs of mapping the shifting quays and harbors and evacuating the last inhabitants. In the latter task, he often needed Karens' help, for most of the people still living on in the sinking cities were either psychopaths or suffering from malnutrition and radiation sickness.